0: Welcome back to Son of a Preacher Man with Jonathan Martin, a podcast all about finding beauty and brokenness, grace and grit, God and the ambiguity of the in-between. In this episode, Jonathan preaches a sermon in Northern Ireland at the church Emmanuel Padadown on the topic of unveiled faces. We hope you enjoy.
1: Thank you, Pastor, uh, and I so appreciate that gracious introduction. I love your church. Thank you for trusting me. We did just meet in person for the first time. Um, that's a good disclaimer, though. If things go bad, you know, like uh, feel free to let me know if, if you're ministered to and if things go poorly, you definitely should should dress down your pastor for that. Let let him have it, really, for having me. No, it's uh, it's an honor to be here, and this is my first time in Northern Ireland. I'm so excited about that. Really, really wonderful. So. Yeah, this is a big deal for me. Thank you for receiving me so graciously. The worship already is. Oh, you just turned me up. Thank you. It's. I come from the southeastern United States. I'm sure you're shocked at that, because you can tell by how I talk. I ain't from around here. Where <laughs> I'm from, I'm, I'm I, I the 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 southeastern United States. Which, by the way, I'm not getting into the whole thing. But like, um, I feel like everywhere I go right now, uh, as an American, I always want to start every talk basically by just saying, I'm sorry. I'm just sorry for all of it. For the Christians all around the world, I was like, what exactly is happening with you guys in America? I don't know, y'all. Please pray for us. We need a lot of help. Um, but no, it really is, uh, it's, it's very good to be with you, and thank you for that beautiful prayer. Since we did pray already, we can kind of, we'll jump right in. Um, I was so excited when I heard that you guys were in a series called Unveiled Faces, because there's a particular text in Second Corinthians, which has become one of my favorite texts in all of the Bible. Think about it a lot. These last couple of years, I've, I've come to it over and over again. So when I found out you were in a series called Unveiled Faces, I just feel like I had to go to this text. It wasn't even a, even a question for me. Second Corinthians chapter 3. And I'll get there in a few minutes if you'll let me... Um, just linger a little while first. You know, um, I am from a very Pentecostal tradition, uh, Pentecostal charismatic. I say that. Really Pentecostal in the southeastern U.S. is, it's kind of its own thing. It's a little, it's a little sweatier. You know, like I come from like Sawdust tent revivals. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? Like, I mean, like, and and southern gospel music, and like we were the uncool Pentecostals. We were like the back, at least in my when I was growing up. Women didn't wear makeup or jewelry, and uh, we didn't go to the movies. Like it was a lot stricter in those days than it is now. But and, and there are plenty of things about it that were colorful, uh, but but many things are really wonderful too. Like I love how I grew up. Very very colorful characters and colorful church services where anything could happen. Absolutely anything could happen. The, in the, uh, my, my highlight always when I was growing up is that uh, every year in the summer in July, we would have our summer camp meeting, which was like a revival on steroids, and this was like everything was oriented around camp, and it was such a big deal. So, like, basically everybody in our little denomination would gather in the summer, and these services we absolutely wild. I mean, it was very rare to have church for less than three and a half or four hours. Um, various evangelists would come through. I don't know how well this this imagery is going to translate. We'll see. but like I, I grew up as a kid really into professional wrestling, and I don't know if like. Professional wrestling was ever a thing here, uh, or American professional wrestling. I'm originally from Charlotte, North Carolina, which is the home of the nature boy Ric Flair, who's a famous wrestler that I loved. And I, I just remember thinking, like a camp meeting in particular, no matter who the evangelist was that would come through, because they would be very different in some ways, but not unlike professional wrestlers. Every evangelist had what I thought of as like being a finishing maneuver. Like in professional wrestling, everybody like Hulk Hogan had the leg drop, and Macho Man Randy Savage did the elbow drop off the top rope. There's always something. Every evangelist had a different finishing maneuver. And there was this one evangelist who was a big deal uh, back in the day who would come through every couple years, and I loved it when he came. His name was Brother Lahan, and whenever Brother Lahan would preach, like the the altar call the altar service at the end when people come down to pray was absolutely bananas and part of what i loved about brother lahan's ministry is that cuz a lot of the preachers that we had come through like would really like shout and scream a lot brother lahan wasn't really like that he had kind of a teaching style was it very loud was it very aggressive but then usually somewhere like during that ministry time at the end like something just switched and he turned into somebody else i don't i don't want to frighten anybody but like he would be given to long pauses, like he'd be in the middle of the thing, and all of a sudden he'd just stop. Be a long pause. He'd close his eyes. Holy Ghost! Loved it when he did that. I was terrified, but I loved it. Come out of nowhere. And like when he screamed Holy Ghost, like stuff was about to go down. So if you, if you can imagine this, I'm 16 years old, And I just started dating this sweet little Baptist girlfriend who had never been to a Pentecostal church. But she knew that camp meeting was a big deal to me, so she was insistent that she wanted to come with me. Did I just knock this over? See, I told you, wild services, anything could happen. She wanted to come with me to the camp meeting. She insisted on it. I did everything I could to try to keep her from coming because she hadn't even been with me to church on a Sunday morning. I just knew this was going to freak her out, but she insisted on coming. And I'll never forget this. We were sitting on the second row on that side. She's sitting beside me. I'm sweating bullets the whole time because I'm scared to death of what was going to happen. But remarkably, that night was actually fairly calm. Like, you know, people would shout a little bit, say, man, lift their hands. But nobody was running the aisles. Nobody was dancing. Like nothing demonstrative happened. I thought, you know what? I, and I, I, I actually, it's funny, I was praying for God not to move in that way. So I actually felt like, man, this, this is great. Like, this is the one tame camp meeting service I've ever been in in my life. And it got close to the ministry time at the end. I'll never forget this, because we're on that second row. And Brother Lahan called for an evangelist. Who, Ironically, we, we, we said brother and sister a lot. He was called Brother Small, which is really funny to me now, because this is not a small man, but Brother Small's on the front row. And Brother Lahan says to Brother Small, Brother, come, come down here. I want to pray for you. And see, I'm bringing this around now. Brother Lahan's finishing maneuver in general was, and I've never seen anybody else do this. I'm sure people have. He would either lay, not his hand, but he would lay his Bible on people, and then they would often fall out and that whole kind of deal, which I, by the way, always, I never fell out and always thought there was something wrong with me. It was like the the... The the altar service would look like a battlefield, like bodies are stacked on each other, and I'm all like the one person who's always like like bobbing up out of the water. I always thought like there must be some sin in my life. I was, I don't know what I thought I was doing so wrong in those days, but I just anyway another sort of another time. When Brother Lohan didn't lay his Bible on people, though, the other thing he did that I thought was so awesome, he would actually throw his Bible to people. That, so this this to me became his signature maneuver. Is that Brother Lohan, on occasion would say. Receive the glory. Throw the Bible. Someone would catch it, and then inevitably, bam, they would fall out. I thought that was the coolest thing. I've never attempted to do this. This could be the morning if I. Um... Actually, I kind of think if I was going to knock anybody out that way, I think it would have to be like a really big, thick, like hardback Bible. If I had that at my disposal and threw it, then probably you'd go down. Um, but yeah, like he, he didn't throw it this time. He didn't do the receive the glory thing. But when Brother Small came up. He hit him with the Bible. Brother Small, bam, he's out under the power. And Brother Lahan says, I need some large men to come and get him up. And some other men come around, and they pick Brother Small up, and he's, like, staggering to his feet. Bam, hits him with the Bible again. He's right back out. Get him up. Bam, he's back out. Get him up. I promise he did what I dubbed the seven dipper on Brother Small, about three feet in front of me and my Southern Baptist girlfriend. I mean, it was just... Oh my I was just terrified. I'm like, there's no going back now. I could just imagine what this car ride is going to be like on the way home, even trying to explain all of this. But I'm saying all that to say because he had this whole ministry that was all about like signs and wonders. And I just I was enamored by all this. And because my dad was in ministry and we were kind of, you know, traffic in those circles, one night of that camp meeting, we went out to eat with Brother Lahan after the service. We get to the restaurant. It's like 1030 at night because, of course, we'd have church for hours. And uh, camp meeting was very bad for metabolism in that way. And we're, so we're having dinner, and Brother Lohan remembers he left his book of sermon outlines back at what we call the tabernacle. And what I thought was just the most amazing thing, he asked me if I would go back and pick it up. Man you would think he had asked me to come back and pick up the Ark of the Covenant to bring it to that restaurant. And I remember even when on the drive over thinking, like, what is it going to be like to pick up Brother Lahan's little notebook of sermon outlines? Like, could God strike me dead? Like, what is going to happen? And I remember when I went into that dark tabernacle going in and picking up the notebook and handling it in this really reverent way because it was like, this is Brother Lahan's, like, this is just, I mean, there was just that degree of just um, otherworldliness to it and otherness that I was like almost afraid and yet like, like so intrigued just to be able to touch his book of sermon outlines. I was just so convinced that like there's got to be some kind of remarkable glory on this because this guy just operates within this cloud all the time. And believe it or not, I've actually been slowly working my way to 2 Corinthians. Shocking, I know, that this is getting towards Scripture. Where the Apostle Paul is in a moment, and I actually Second Corinthians is my favorite of any of the epistles. He's, it just gives you a much more human version of the Apostle Paul. I very much believe, like all of Scripture, it's spirit-breathed. But spirit-breathed through a very human vessel. And I don't know how you read 2 Corinthians and you don't get a sense of like, Paul's humanity. I mean, he is he is wounded. Here are these people that he's pastored, that he's discipled, that he has he's been in their lives in the trenches. And now there are these other characters who are showing up in town that were that look, like people actually call them the super apostles. And read between the lines, this actually is in the text. Not only were the super apostles known to do bigger miracles than Paul. They did flashier miracles. It was even said that they were better looking. They do bigger miracles, they're better looking, and they're better speakers. Because that's the knock on Paul, is that in person, he's not really an impressive, he's not. bright, but he's not an impressive order. So now, everywhere Paul goes, he's hearing about the super apostles, and he's seeing people from this church that he has given his very life to start to 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 kind of migrate to these guys, and you can just feel in Second Corinthians, he's human enough to where this really hurts, this really hurts, and so part of what makes Second Corinthians so genius to me is that Paul is defensive, kind of angry, definitely still loving, definitely hurting. I hope this is an okay word to use for the Apostle Paul, because this is a word that y'all have that we don't really use back home, but I think we should because I don't know the word that quite captures the spirit of it cheeky. Can I say the Apostle Paul is cheeky here? Like, he's very like, there's like a sarcastic edge to a lot of what Paul is doing, because everywhere he goes, he keeps hearing about the super apostles and all their credentials. So Paul's basic argument through the book of 2 Corinthians is, oh, yeah, I know you've heard all about the super apostles and how great they are. I know you've heard their resume. Let me give you mine. They've done all these extraordinary things. Let me tell you about how often I've been beat up. They're always talking about how strong they are. Let me show you just how weak I really am. And at the exact same time, while the super apostles are bragging about their extraordinary miracles, this is the same book where Paul is talking about how he's got a thorn in the flesh that he asked God three times to remove that Jesus said, I'm not going to do it. My grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. And he's just putting it all out there. My favorite, one of my favorite sections of this, I'm just, I'm riffing here for a minute. I promise we really are getting scripture, but reread 2 Corinthians, you'll see this. There is a form that Paul, that Paul follows about midway through the book that's common in antiquity. And it's like Paul is talking about all the times he's been beaten and whipped. And it's like, it feels like it's building to a crescendo. And, and where you feel like it's about to go is like Paul is leading up to this really heroic, remarkable thing that he does but it's so subversive because Paulus, he's going through the litany of all the times he's been beaten and shipwrecked and all this stuff that's happened. When he gets to, like, the climax of that, he talks about how, you know, the Romans are coming out after them. And they, they and then right at the last moment, they lowered me out through the window. If I can commandeer language here from Monty Python and the Holy Grail, I bravely ran away. Like, this is, I'm not superimposing this in the text. This is what's going on. Paul is so... He's so playful with it. And all this, like, if you want to hear about how strong these guys are, let me tell you how, how weak I really am. But at the heart of this whole text, this whole project, because here I am trying to, like, summarize 2 Corinthians to you, is 2 Corinthians 3, uh, beginning with verse 1. And I love this text. Paul says, Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? He is on edge. Surely we do not need, as some do, Millennials in the states, we would say he's there, there's a little he's throwing some shade here. I'm a little too old maybe to use these kind of terms, but there's a little bit of shade thrown at the super apostles. It's like, oh, I know that a lot of folks need a uh, letter of recommendation. You know, you know, like some people do, like the so-called super apostles. You yourselves, verse two, are our letter written on our hearts to be known and read by all, and you show that you're a letter of Christ prepared by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Verse four, such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are competent of ourselves to claim anything as coming from us. Our competence is from God. Verse six, who has made us competent to be ministers of a new covenant, not of letter, but of spirit, for the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Now, this is where this gets really interesting. There's a a twist here that I love, verse 7. Now, if the ministry of death, chiseled in letters on stone tablets, came in glory so that the people of Israel could not gaze at Moses' face because of the glory of his face, a glory that is now set aside, how much more will the ministry of the spirit come in glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, much more does the ministry of justification abound in glory. Indeed, what once had glory has lost its glory because of the greater glory. For if what was set aside came through glory, much more has the permanent come in glory. Verse 12. This is what I really want to focus our attention for these last few minutes we have. Since then we have such a hope, we act with great boldness. Now look at verse 13. Not like Moses, who put a veil over his face to keep the, the people of Israel from gazing at the end of the glory that was being set aside, but their minds were hardened. Indeed, to this very day, when they hear the reading of the old covenant, that same veil is still there, since only in Christ is it set aside. Indeed, to this very day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their minds. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom, and to the title of the series, and all of us with unveiled faces, seeing the glory of the Lord as though reflected in a mirror, are being transformed in the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord, the Spirit." That's a mouthful. But I want you to really, really see what's going on here. The Apostle Paul makes an absolutely radical, extraordinary move here. Because you have to keep in mind that Paul is a devout Jew, as he will say in Philippians, a Hebrew of Hebrews, a Jew of Jews. He he has the pedigree, he kept the law. Uh, So many of the earliest followers of Jesus, of course, really saw themselves not yet as like starting some kind of new religion. They saw themselves as as a reform movement within Judaism that believed that Jesus is the Messiah. And Paul here now is doing a truly remarkable thing. That, that only Paul could do. I, I, I say things sometimes, I don't know how this stuff goes over anywhere, much less like here, but sometimes I'd like to describe Paul as the Kanye West of the Bible, which sounds kind of sacrilegious, but if you know anything about Kanye West, you know there's like this fine line between like bravado and swagger and then like oddly really vulnerable and stuff too? That's Paul in Second Corinthians because Paul here like now is gonna make a move that you could not imagine any other Jewish person making, especially because this is not in the text he throws Moses under the bus. That's what Paul does here. He throws Moses under the proverbial bus. Because when we read Exodus, Exodus only tells us one thing about the scene which Paul references, and that is this. Exodus says that when the glory of God came on Moses, it was so bright and so shiny that Moses had to wear a veil to protect the people of God from the glory that's on his face. That's all you get in the book of Exodus. Nothing else that you read here, we have none of that. So whether or not Paul got this like kind of through midrash, through the way that other like kind of priests and teachers would kind of jam things out, stuff that's kind of passed down through oral tradition, or whether or not he claims to get this by revelation of the spirit, I don't know but Paul is saying something the Old Testament decisively does not say and that is this Paul says hey y'all remember that whole business about Moses and how he had the veil on and then he had to keep it on to protect the people from the glory of God because it was so bright it might like harm them yeah let me tell you what was really going on there for a while Paul kept the veil on to protect the people from the glory but then he's saying study this it's it's all there but then Paul Uh, where Paul says, Moses left the veil on, and he left the veil on so that the people would not see when the glory of God was being set aside. Now, that's a remarkable claim. Paul says Moses left the veil on too long because he was afraid of the people. He needed the people to think that he operated in the glory all the time, he needed the people to think he was always on. He needed the people to think he was always holy because otherwise he was afraid there'd be some kind of a rebellion or an uprising. So, so there becomes this kind of like, uh, th- this insecurity to it, th- this need to project some kind of a, of a false confidence. Or I, I, I thought about this a long time ago, and it's so random. I used to pastor a church that I planted in Charlotte, North Carolina, And I remember for a while, our denomination was going to, uh, I don't know why this hit me funny right now. We were, they had all the church leaders, they were doing like a church growth initiative. And the initiative that we were all a part of for a little while was called 24 to Double. The idea, as denoted in the title, is you can double the attendance at your church in just 24 months, so long as you follow these principles. Now I went because I tried to be a team player with a denomination. I want to support stuff. And some of the stuff I thought was fine. And some of it really had me pulling out my hair. I remember one day in particular that I'm sitting in this seminar with the church growth expert, and this is what he said. I'll never forget this. He said, no matter how small your church is, even if you only have 20 or 30 people on a Sunday morning, you need to make sure as quickly as possible that you get video cameras set up and that you have big screens And that you project the image of the pastor on the screen, once again, even if there's only 20 or 30 people and everybody can see just fine. And why does he say this? Because the thing you have to understand, it doesn't matter how small or large your church is, people want a leader who is larger than life. And I quote, people want a leader who is larger than life. People do want a leader who's larger than life. Part of, part of why we're often drawn to stupid, incompetent leaders. We want, we want someone that we think is somehow above us, even if they're bad for us. We, the trouble is, no one is actually larger than life. No one's larger than life. And while I'm no great saint or holy person, I can tell you I've been around some of the godliest. I have been around some saints. And I will tell you that if you're around any saint for long enough, you will find out that they are human in precisely all the same ways that you are, that they have quirks and idiosyncrasies just like you do, that they're challenging in their relationships just like sometimes you are, that they're obnoxious and ornery when sleep-deprived or tired, or hungry, just like you are, no one operates within the glory cloud all the time. No matter how profound the gift is, no matter how beautiful God uses a person, no one lives in that state all the time. Like, it, you're, just not, you're just not on that way. But what happens, what happens is that, and this is what, this is Paul's critique of Moses. Moses thinks that by putting on the veil, he's going to protect the people. That's, what, that's the logic. I'm protecting them. It's good. They need to see me as anointed all the time. They need to see me as on. He thinks he's doing this to protect them. But what Paul is saying here is, is like, instead of protecting the people, he was actually harming them because now what's happened is that there's still a veil over their face even to this time. They so believed in the glory of God on Moses that now they're still living back then. I love it how in church culture, and I feel like this is true around the world, in any church culture, in any revival movement, everybody has some good old days back then. Man, if we could just get back to the move of God back in 1927 or 1946 or 1962. Man, back in the good old days of Azusa Street, back in the good old days of the Westland Revival, back in the good old days of the charismatic renewal in the 70s, everybody's got some back there when it was really awesome and God was really moving. And the trouble is, for one thing, I found, um, let me say it like this, for one thing, over time, let's be clear, we have a way of romanticizing the past that's not super truthful. One of the reasons I got, I promise, again, I'm, I'm, I'm on my best behavior this morning, one of the reasons that the whole thing in America, the whole slogan of make America great again is fingernails on a chalkboard for me every time, It is that if you know anything about our history, is that America was never great for a large swath of people in our country. Let's get back to the good old days. What good old days are you talking about, and who were they good for? You want to get back to the good old days of Jim Crow laws in the United States just in the 1950s and 60s? When we've got segregation, you want to get back to the good old days of slavery? Because the American dream really was never, really never all that great for all people. But there's this romanticized vision of it. Back in the day, you know when people didn't cuss on television. so Who cares that people of different ethnicities had different water fountains and people, you know, and and, and like all these horrible things that happened. But, you know, like, like people were nice. Let's get back to those good old days. The good old days were not that great. And I'm telling you, I really believe this. I think it's true even in the greatest moves of God. Like, over time, you look back, and the way that we do, it's it's rosy and it's real pretty. Nothing's ever all that orderly and awesome in the moment that you're living it. Do you know what I'm saying? Because, like, just because God is moving doesn't mean that people's real lives aren't messy and complicated and that leaders don't have flaws and issues. Of course they do. I love it, like, when we talk about sometimes, like, we'll say, man, we just – We want to have a New Testament church. That's what we need. We need to have a New Testament church. That's awesome. What New Testament church would you like to have? You want to have Corinth? You want to have Thyatira? You want to have Pergamum? Because when you read about the actual New Testament churches, they're as jacked up as all of our churches are now. And these are churches that the apostles actually preached in. (laughs) And they still had all kind of issues and conflict and strife because that's just real life. But when you... You, you fixate on some kind of a fictional past when everything was rosy and clear and God was good and everything was awesome. People have a way of getting trapped there. And what I find happens so often, and this is true about people in vocational ministry, but I don't just mean that. This is true just for Christians in general. We think that we need the people around us to see us as being especially holy because that's good for them. I can't be vulnerable. I can't let them see that I'm still struggling. I need them to see the power of Christ in me. I can't let them see that I'm a real person. But it's funny, even if ostensibly the idea is that we're doing it for them, ultimately it's really not for them, is it? It's really about self-protection. And actually, instead of helping it, it, it harms. And this is what moves us to the truly radical claim that Paul is making. Yeah, uh, and again, this is why I say Paul is like the Kanye West of the, of the New Testament because who else but Paul could get, away from compare, could get away with comparing himself to Moses and saying he's better? <laughs> but this is what he does. But it's a funny way of saying he's better. Unlike Moses... Who wrecked everything by keeping the veil on so that everybody thought he was on all the time and everybody thought he was so awesome and everybody thought he was so anointed? Let me tell you the difference between me and Moses. You've seen the glory of God in us through our unveiled faces. In other words, you've seen me hurt, you've seen me bleed, you've seen me wounded, you've seen me broken. You've seen me not at my best. You've seen me utterly beaten down. If you thought the glory of God was bright through Moses, baby, check it out right here. Because you want to really see what the glory of God looks like? Let me show you what God's glory looks like through a broken vessel. If you thought it was impressive, oh, that part was just show. That was like the Wizard of Oz. You get back behind the curtain, and there's just a little man back there. But Paul's never been afraid to show his humanity. It's, in fact, that very passage that leads into the next chapter. I'm not gonna have you turn there. But where we get that wonderful quotation that so many of us love, that in Corinth, where they actually, which was known for manufacturing these really cheap lamps, they were kind of like these flimsy lampshades, that's where we get to Paul's great uh, kind of climax to all this, when he says that we have this treasure in earthen vessels, in jars of clay, this is the best translation, we have this light in cracked lamps so that people will know that the glory of God comes, that this glory comes from God and not from ourselves. That's what Paul wants to say. I'm gonna look at one more verse here and then I promise I am truly going to shut this thing down. You know, we Americans, we like to talk a lot, don't we? And take our time. Hear this in this context. Go back to verse 15 one more time. Indeed, this very day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their minds. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And all of us with unveiled faces, seeing the glory of the Lord as though reflected in a mirror, are being transformed in the same image from one degree of glory to another. I find it so fascinating that this is the context which those of us who are more charismatic have always loved. This is the context where we get now the lord is spirit and where the spirit of the lord is there is freedom. There's liberty. Now the way I've heard that text used all my life and I to be clear I don't think this is bad. I actually think on principle this works fine. But we always use this to say where the spirit of the lord is there is freedom in worship. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, you can dance. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, you can run the aisles. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, you can knock people out with Bibles. And all of that may be well and true, but it's not what Paul is saying here. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. The kind of freedom that Paul is talking about here is not freedom in worship, but it's the freedom for once in your life to finally take the veil off. And to be able to be in the presence of God and be in the presence of others, warts and all. The freedom that Paul is talking about here is being able to own your whole story, including the darkest nights. The freedom that Paul is talking about here is not having to censor any of the pain, is not having to censor any of the abuse, and yes, even not having to censor your own failure or your own sin. But rather, rather, to be able to tell the whole story that if you want to really know what the glory of God looks like in me, you got to see how God has worked and is currently working in the midst of my brokenness. That's not a worse testimony. That's a better testimony. It's taken me all my 40 years, I feel like, to figure this out because growing up with such a superficial idea of holiness and thinking that I needed to pose so that people would, you know, would somehow be pointing to Jesus, oh, I need to be at my best all the time. I need to look my best, dress my best, act my best. Here's what happens 10 times out of 10. I've seen it over and over again. I'll be doing something like this, speaking to a crowd or just a handful of people, and I'll have some kind of prepared talk or spiel 100% of the time. The minute I let down my guard and I let anybody in to the real things that are going on in my life. Hey, let me tell you what's actually happening here. Let me tell you what I'm struggling with right now. Let me tell you things that are pulling at my heart. Let me tell you about the shattering reality of divorce, which I could have never conceived for myself. Let me tell you about how um, not awesome things are in the moment financially. Let me tell you how weak and how... I've seen it over and over again. The moment that a person gets vulnerable, the presence of God comes in like, like, like lightning. It's like, it is is like, it is like a moth to flame because I think there's just something about vulnerability. The moment that we're open about what's really going on inside. Now that's, now that's when the presence of God is able to really come amongst us where there's vulnerability. I don't know how you feel about your beer here in Northern Ireland, but I'm going to tell you something right now, and I'm not recommending this to you People who are vulnerable in a bar are closer to God than people who are not vulnerable in a church. You can quote me on that. Because I'm telling you, the moment that you're buttoned up, the moment that you're trying to keep it together, what's so wild about God and his mercy is there is nothing that God can't forgive. There's, nothing that, there's no circumstances in which God cannot move unless you insist on keeping the mask on. God cannot bless who you pretend to be so long as there is still a veil so long as there's still a pretense, that and that right there is the only thing that stops the movement of the Holy Spirit. I really believe this. And I'm telling you what I've learned from hard experience, because what I found is that when I've been at my lowest moments and my worst, when I was most vulnerable and flat on my back, when I was honest about that, there was still room for the Holy Spirit to come and move. In fact, it seems to do all the more so. I I, I'm not, I'm not, I don't even know what I'm doing right now. I'm just telling you that just, just, this has just been my experience. I believe in all the spiritual disciplines and I'm all about it, guiding people in life of prayer, fasting, et cetera, all the things. But I'll just tell you a a comical movement in my life. Every time in my life that I've decided I'm going to go on a fast, I'm going to 21 day fast and I'm going to show God that I am serious. And then God is really going to move. I love it. for if that happens to you, praise God. God uses any and all things. But this has been my experience. I, I'll go on the long fast. Nothing happens. Nothing. like nothing changes. And then in the middle of my worst day and my worst moment, where I'm like, "Oh, it's like that story Jesus tells. The only thing I can hardly get of my mouth, have mercy on me, I'm a sinner." In that worst moment, then God shows up in the most profound way. And I used to think that was so mysterious and strange. Now I think I get it a little bit more because <laughs> I think God knows that I've got an awful lot of superficiality in me that needs to be broken. And I think it's, he, he's gone the long way to make sure that I am very clear <laughs> that the glory does not come from me, that the glory comes from him. Oh, you thought it was because you worked hard enough? You thought, it was, you thought if you prayed long enough? You thought if you put in enough hours? Is that really how you think I work? That, that if you prove something to me, and instead it always seems like when I feel the least deserving and the least worthy and ready, then God does something really extravagant and extraordinary, because He wants you to be clear that it's a gift. I told you I was going to stop, and I am. So here's the thing. Where I want to leave this this morning is I'm curious. I'm not curious, but like on a soul level, like I just wonder. I wonder what things in your life right now where you're keeping up a veil. I wonder about the things that are happening in your soul that nobody else knows about. I wonder about the things that, that happen in, that are really happening in your marriage. Because is it, is it great how that works on the way to church? How you can have like war in the van on the way over and you go, good morning, God bless you, how are you? Yes, good to see you. How are you doing? Oh, I'm blessed. <laughs> blessed and highly favored. Like all that, you know, like whatever, like you did these things, these things. What's really going on in the marriage? What's really going on in your own heart? What's the addiction? What's the besetting sin that you feel like you just can't get over? We are scared to death to move into the kind of space where those kind of things would be brought open in the presence of God, and certainly not in the presence of others. You know, I, I really am trying to wind out, but, but you know, the other thing that would happen a lot in those days when those preachers would come through, a lot of them were prophetic, and I just knew somebody was going to call me up, call me out in front of the church, especially when I was going through puberty. I, I didn't really understand enough to sin too bad, I don't think, but especially in that phase, I just knew that night evangelist is going to prophesy, and he's going to tell everybody in the church what I was thinking about yesterday. Now, now now at this point in my life, I know that's not how God works, but I'm surprised at how many of us still, on some level, we really still think that, don't we? Like that God would want to shame us. Like God would make us look stupid. Here's the fact: God only brings things into light, never for the sake of shaming, never for the sake of harm. God brings things that have been hidden in darkness in the light for no other reason than for our healing, than for our healing. It can't be healed until it's brought into the light. So I just want to issue a a gentle, tender invitation this morning to come into the light. And whatever it is that's really going on in the depths of your soul, let it be what it is. It's all right to be honest about that. It's all right to tell the truth. Hey, y'all, I'm a faith person. I still believe that faith is, 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 is good and that God works through miraculous and all that. But I feel like so many of us, at least in the world I come from, we we came to equate faith with denial. Like we went through the phase in our churches, you know, like where, you, where if you're sick, you couldn't say you're sick because it's a negative confession. God have mercy. If you got a cold, man, you got a cold. Oh, I don't want to say I've got a stomach bug because that's a lack of faith, and then I will have the stomach bug three days later. Are you in some kind of folk religion, like offering sacrifices to an idol? Are you serving the living God? Say that you're sick on your stomach. You hear what I'm saying? Like... Let it be what it is. And the more you let it be what it is, and the more you let yourself be who you really are and where you really are, the more of an opportunity it is through those cracks for the light to come through, for the power to come through. If you thought the glory of God was impressive through somebody who looked like they had it all together, you haven't seen anything yet until you've seen the glory of God through somebody who's broken. Stand with me if you would. I'm going to pray for us, and then, Alan, I'll hand it back over to you. But I just want to take a moment, not too long, but just to, I do want to linger for a minute because, and if you don't mind even just closing your eyes with me, I'm not going to have anybody come forward or anything like that, but I would just love, and this is the invitation. Right now you are in the presence of the living God, the God who raised Israel up out of Egypt and Jesus of Nazareth up out of the grave is here with us now. As we sung about, he's filling every breath. In him we live and move and have our being. He sustains us with his love. He is so here. You are literally breathing him in and out. All right, the presence of God surrounds you now. And here's the invitation. Why don't you bring your whole self into his presence? Why don't you bring all of it? Why don't you stop trying to push it down? trying to repress the memory or cover the pain. Just be with him. Let him be with you in that pain. Let him be with you in that tenderness. Let him be with you in that broken places. And I'm going to say it over to you now as a prayer. Where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom there is liberty. So Holy Spirit, bring your freedom right now. Breathe on these, your sons and daughters, as I commend them to your presence, that the very real presence of a risen Jesus would hover over them now. They would know that they are safe. They know that they are loved that nothing is off limits, there's nothing you can't heal, there's nothing you're afraid to touch, we don't have to worry about contaminating you or contaminating one another. And I would even ask you now, just finally, I'm not gonna drag this out, but in whatever form that you would, this would feel most comfortable to you, I love in a moment like this to raise my hands as an act of surrender. But some form, some form of just lifting whatever it is that's in you up into the presence. I'm calling some things into my mind right now. Lord, you see these things that even in this moment are still unresolved. Lord, you see these things that are still broken. You see these things where there's still not clarity. God, I just bring those things into your presence now. And instead of holding them back and instead of being ashamed, we offer These are real stories as gifts to you. (laughs) We bring the gift of our pain. We bring the gift of our brokenness. We lay even our sins and our addictions and our flaws, we lay all of it at your feet. And as we now open our hands, Spirit of God, God, in this great exchange, we receive your healing, we receive your life, we receive your freedom, we receive your wholeness And now in the name of Jesus Christ, I promise I'm almost done, but in the name of Jesus, I just speak against shame, and I speak against condemnation, and I speak against fear. Where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom, there is liberty. You have not given your sons and daughters a spirit of fear, but a spirit of adoption by which we cry out, Abba, Father, you said that perfect love casts out fear that he who fears has not yet been made perfect in love. So God, I just pray wherever there's fear, fear of your judgment, fear of how other people would judge us, fear of how the story would be told. God, I just pray that you would break that fear now in the name of Jesus Christ, that love, love, and only the warmth of your love would prevail here. That everyone here is safe, that everyone here is called, that everyone here, Lord, you are calling not by any of the labels that we picked up from anybody else. You say, you are my beloved son and whom I'm well pleased. You are my beloved daughter in whom I'm well pleased. Bring your freedom, Holy Spirit. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.
0: Thank you for listening today, everyone. For more, go to JonathanMartinWords.com and follow him on Twitter and Instagram. You can also support this podcast by going to patreon.com slash man, and you can help us keep this podcast going. Now remember, no matter who you are or where you come from, we hope this podcast will help you come to know the love that calls you by your true name. God bless.